Would you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? Uh, we've been spending a lot of time in 2 Corinthians here in the past few months. But today I'd like us to look at this passage that speaks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'd like to read for us verses 1 to 11 as we begin. The Apostle Paul writes, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles. I do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, there is joy in our hearts because Jesus Christ is alive. We worship you, Father, and we worship you, Jesus, and we give you thanks for what you have done for our salvation. And today, as we listen to the Scripture and we think about the power of your resurrection and the hope that it brings, may you just speak to our hearts again and encourage us, give us strength, and draw us closer to yourself. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, it is good to be with you this morning. Uh, many of you know I was recently in Guatemala on a mission trip and just came back, and I was really looking forward to being here today. Uh, there's nothing like worshiping in your own congregation with brothers and sisters in Christ that you love and to be able to celebrate this wonderful day. While I was traveling, I read a book that was written by John Ortberg called uh, When the Game is Over, It All Goes Back in the Box. It's a study that we're looking at using this fall in our ABFs. But I want to share with you a story from that book. Uh, Pastor John Ortberg is kind of funny in the way he writes. You know, he takes real-life stories and he makes applications out of them. And he shared a story about a member in his congregation who had gotten his pilot's license had invited John to go up with him one day in his airplane. John thought that would be kind of fun, you know, an opportunity to go up flying over the area, see the ocean, you know, and the shoreline of California there. And so he agreed. And they met one morning at this small municipal airport where the pilot had his airplane. You know, they get into the plane, and he's going through his detailed checklist of all the things that you have to make sure, you know, gas tank full, check. Wings still attached, check. You know, he's going through all the stuff on the list, and then he starts talking to the control tower uh, to make sure about wind and weather and if he's cleared for takeoff. Now, John is sitting in the airplane. He said, there was one thing that I didn't understand about this pre-flight checklist, though. I looked out the window and I noticed that we were still tied to the ground. 
You know those ropes that tether an airplane on the wings and that are anchored in the asphalt and there on the ground? We're still tied to the ground. And he goes, I'm looking at this, and I don't want to insult my friend's intelligence. He's a brilliant guy. You know, he's obviously got this all under control. And so I, I just sat there and waited. John goes, you know, I know of nobody who has less mechanical intelligence than I do. Uh, you know, if my car breaks down, I have on occasion looked under the hood. I don't know why, but I have. Uh, maybe if there was a giant on-off switch there that was in the off position, I might know what to do. But other than that, I'm pretty helpless. So he figured there had to be some kind of rope-disabling mechanism, maybe something that causes these ropes to just fall right off when it's time to take off. So his friend goes through the whole list. The engine is roaring, the propeller's turning, he's ready to go, and he looks out the window and he goes, Oh my gosh. I can't believe it. We forgot to untie the ropes. John goes, I wanted to get out of the plane. <laughs> Just kind of wondering what else may have been forgotten. And the guy goes, well, I suppose I better get out there and untie those ropes. And so he hops out and John's going, I wanted to get out of the plane. <laughs> but they ended up taking off and it was a fine, uneventful flight that he enjoyed that morning. Well, the point of that story is that, you know, sometimes we need to state the obvious. I mean, that may seem pretty obvious. If you're going to fly, you've got to untie the ropes. I mean, you'd almost think we well, don't even need to say that or, or that's just assumed or known. You know, and so we kind of operate like that at times in our life. But some things are really important and need to be said. And first things need to be done first. The gospel of Jesus Christ is like that. You know, there are a lot of people who think, yeah, I understand the gospel. Isn't that about Christ or about what we read in the scripture, kind of that story about Jesus? Well, yes, it is, but there's much more than that. And there are times when people forget what the gospel is or how significant it is for our life. People drift away from the gospel. Whole denominations have moved away from the gospel when they have forgotten what is essential to our faith. And Paul didn't want that to happen. And so when he wrote to the Corinthians, he said, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. That when he came, he preached this message about Christ crucified, Jesus Christ who died for our sins, who is our hope of salvation. The Apostle Peter felt the same way near the end of his life in Second Peter chapter 1. He said, I want to remind you of these things so that after I am gone you will remember them. I don't ever want to take for granted that you understand what is so important and essential to our faith because we will never get off the ground spiritually until we understand what the gospel is and how it applies to our life. The gospel and the resurrection are at the heart of our faith. So today we're going to look at what the gospel means and how that applies to our life. Paul tells us the gospel is good news. That's what the word evangel means. The word in scripture evangel means good news. It is this announcement of Christ and why he has come. And so Paul tells us in verses 2 again that I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Because it is by this gospel that you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. 
we get a sense that there is something very, very important here. What is this gospel? Well, in verses 3 and 4, he tells us it is the good news that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He rose again on the third day. It is why Christ came. He came into the world to save sinners. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1.15 that here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It was exactly what we needed because all of us have sinned. Sometimes people object to being called a sinner. Have you ever had that experience? Or maybe you even felt that way. I've had times when I've shared the gospel with someone and I've talked about the problem of man's sin and I've had people that have been offended. Like, you're calling me a sinner. Well, yes I am. And I am saying that I am a sinner too. I'm not saying anything that the Scripture does not say about us because all of us have sinned. But some people think about the term sinner as though that's really, you know, that's extreme. That's like, you know, something you'd say about people that are mass murderers or serial killers or terrorists. Now, they're sinners, but, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I haven't done anything that bad. And the problem when we think like that is that we are looking in the wrong direction. The standard of holiness is not how good we are. Are we a pretty good person compared to somebody else? The standard of holiness is God Himself. And God is absolutely holy, perfectly righteous, without sin. And that is what He expects of each of us. If we are to have fellowship and stand in His presence, we need to be without sin. But none of us are. All of sin. All of us fall short of the glory of God. We have missed the mark of God's perfect holiness. And as a result, we are separated from Him. But it gets even worse. The Bible tells us not only are we separated from God, but we are under the wrath of God. His punishment for sins that we deserve. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus lived an absolutely sinless life. He fulfilled the demands of the law, and this one who was totally innocent chose to take upon himself our sins, stand in our place, pay the penalty that we deserved of death for our sins when he died on the cross. And he did that so that we might be forgiven and have eternal life. He did not have to do that. He chose to do that willingly because of his great love for you and me. And again, sometimes people hear that story and they think about it and it seems kind of distant, kind of Maybe abstract. Jesus died for the whole world. What does that have to do with me? But Jesus loved you so much that He died personally in your place. During the early days of World War II, in 1941, Auschwitz, that German concentration camp, was used as a holding camp for Polish prisoners of war and laborers who were doing work for the Germans. It also was a place where Jews and outspoken Christians were brought. And they were warned that if anyone tried to escape, for each one who escaped, ten individuals would be chosen and killed in their place. And one day, when the number was counted, there was a man who was missing. And so the commander of that camp randomly picked ten men to die that day. 
One of those men began to plead with him for mercy, saying, I have a family, I have children, please spare my life. And what happened that morning was very amazing. There was another man in that camp who said, let me die in his place. His name was Maximilian Kolb. He was a priest, a Polish priest. And he said, I am alone in the world. I have no children, and this prisoner has a family. Please let me take his place. The commander gave the nod, and it was settled, and he was led away with the other men to die by starvation in an underground holding cell. Normally, when men were put into that cell, you could often hear the cursing and the profanity, the anger at their captors. But on this occasion, what you heard in that camp was the sound of music, singing, worship, and praise. There was a priest who told them, a one of Christ who would be in their midst and who would walk with them even in the valley of the shadow of death. Well, amazingly, the man whose life was spared survived the horrors of Auschwitz. And after the war was over on August 14th, the day when this man died in his place, for the remaining 40 years of his life, every year he would remember this one who died for me. It was personal. He knew that the only reason he was alive was because of the sacrifice made by this individual. Yet that is exactly what Jesus has done for us. The only reason we can live, the only reason we have the freedoms that we enjoy is because of Christ who died in our place to pay the penalty that we deserve. That's the good news of the gospel and is there for all who will receive it. How does the resurrection fit with this? Well, the resurrection is the proof that the gospel is true. Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. The gospel and the resurrection are inseparable. You simply cannot have one without the other. John MacArthur writes that without the resurrection, salvation could not be provided. Apostle Paul said that if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, that we are still in our sins. Our faith is futile and we are to be pitied among all men. But Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And yet without belief in the resurrection, salvation cannot be received. You see, this isn't something that's just a piece of information that we're to know in our head and say, okay, I believe the story that Jesus died and rose again. But no, what God wants of us is to surrender our life to Him, to place our hope, our confidence, our trust in His Son who died in our place so that we might be forgiven. You cannot be a Christian without believing in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Michael Green writes of how important this is to our faith. He said, Christianity does not hold the resurrection to be one among many tenets of belief. Without faith in the resurrection, there would be no Christianity at all. The Christian church would never have begun. The Jesus movement would have fizzled out like a damp squib with his crucifixion. Christianity stands or falls with the resurrection. Once disprove it and you have disposed of all of Christianity. Many have tried, but no one has disproved it. And in fact, many who have tried to do so have been convinced by the evidence and come to faith in Christ. The Bible tells us there is only one gospel. There is no other way to get to heaven but through Jesus. 
In Acts 4.12, the Scripture says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And sometimes people ask the question, well, how do we know it's true? I mean, really, how do we know that all of this is true? Well, for the Apostle Paul, the evidence for the resurrection rested on three things. It was based on the authority of Scriptures, it was based on the testimony of eyewitnesses, and it was based on his personal experience, his personal encounter with Jesus Christ. The way that you establish the fact of the resurrection is the way that you establish the fact of other historical events. You look at the evidence for it. You look and you listen to those who were eyewitnesses who saw and heard these things and wrote them down. And you examine the evidence for yourself personally. And what we find is that the Bible is indeed an amazing book. It was written over 1,500 years by 40 different human authors, yet there is a unity to it that when you read it, you would not detect all of that. And there were over 60 major prophecies concerning Jesus Christ before he was born. I mean, the Old Testament prophesied that he would be born of a virgin, he'd be born in Bethlehem, he would be of the line of Judah, one of his descendants, he would be the son of David and the son of God. He would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. His primary ministry would be in Galilee, he would perform great miracles. Of his ministry, he would be a stumbling block to the Jews, but he would be a light to the Gentiles. It prophesied about his death and his resurrection, his ascension, his betrayal by a friend that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, and that money would be used to buy a potter's field. He would be forsaken by the disciples, falsely accused by other witnesses. He would be crucified with thieves. He would be pierced, and yet not one of his bones would be broken. And he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Staggering when you think of all those things hundreds of years before Christ was born. Circumstances and events that are out of anyone's control other than God's. And they all were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. One mathematician has said, you know, the odds of even eight of those being fulfilled in one person would be 10 to the 17th power. Now that's more zeros than we can probably think of in our mind. So here's an illustration of what that's like. It would be like taking the state of Texas and covering it two feet deep with silver dollars across the whole state. Then you blindfold someone and you tell them, I want you to walk in any direction as far as you can and I want you to pick out the one silver dollar that's been marked out of all those coins. And if you can find that, that would be the odds of eight of these things being fulfilled in any one person. That's unbelievable. Who could do that? No one but God. Wilbur Smith, who was a great Bible scholar, wrote, he said, It has always occurred to me that if our Lord could predict his own death and resurrection with great detail, and he did, and if this prediction came to pass just as he said, then everything else our Lord said must also be true. Apostle Paul also based his faith on the testimony of eyewitnesses. He tells us here of six different appearances after the resurrection when Jesus appeared to those who had seen him. He appeared to, more, uh, he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve in verse 5. 
In verse 6, he says, After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. That would be like Jesus appearing here in our congregation today for all of us to see. He appeared then to James, to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to Paul, this writer of Scripture. It was remarkable. But what's significant, too, is that none of them were looking for a resurrection. After Jesus died, their faith was dashed. They thought this was it. Some of them were going back to their occupations. They were returning to their homes. Remember, Jesus met the two brothers on the road to Emmaus, and he had to convince them that he was alive. And when their eyes were opened and they saw Jesus, their hearts burned within them. These individuals went out and were willing to die for the truth of what they knew. Jesus is alive. And the Apostle Paul also had this dramatic personal encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus when he was going to Damascus to round up believers, to arrest them and put them to death. And he was struck by a light that blinded him, a light from heaven, and he heard a voice calling out saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? He asked. And Jesus said, It is I, Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul came to know the risen and living Christ. And what we see in the Scripture here is how the Gospel transforms lives. The Gospel changed Paul's life. And he would say about himself in 1 Timothy 1.16, that for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display His unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on Him and receive eternal life. Paul is saying, if God can save me, and He did, He can save you no matter what you have done. The gospel changed my life. It can change your life if you will surrender your heart to Him. The gospel also transforms communities. If I had more time, I'd love to tell you the longer story of this event. But um, a few weeks ago in our missions prayer potluck, we showed a DVD of a village in Guatemala that has experienced a major revival and transformation. They used to have four jails in this town that were full because of drunkenness or violence in the town. Well, God did a miracle in that town. And people came to know Christ in large numbers and churches flourished and bars closed and the jails closed. And those four jails, the jailer said he had nothing to do. He was kind of like out of work because of such a dramatic work of God that took place. And this village was also affected in terms of its agriculture and the blessing of God upon their crops and produce. Well, when I was down there, I asked if we could go see this village if it was nearby. And we did. It was only about 45 minutes away from Kiakish, the village where we have worked. And I saw the produce, which was amazing. You know, carrots about as big as your forearm. One guy handed me a radish that was about the size of an apple. I mean, it was amazing what they are producing and growing and how healthy the people are. And they love to have visitors because they love to tell the story of what God has done in their city and community. Praise God. It is just a foretaste of what God is going to do in the future. Because the gospel is bigger and far more reaching than just even our individual salvation, the gospel will impact the whole world. 
Brian Chapel writes that the gospel is the message that God has fulfilled His promise to send a Savior to rescue broken people and to restore creation's glory and rule over it with compassion and justice. In Romans 8, Paul writes that the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. One day this world is going to be changed and Jesus Christ will reign. And the creation itself is longing for that day when all things will be made new. John Eldridge writes about that and says how wondrous this will be. This present creation can be so breathtaking now. What will it be like when it is released to its full glory? When we see and understand all that God is going to do in the future. McLean wrote about this earth. He said it was the world with the dew still on it. And it will be our paradise again. We seem to have forgotten or perhaps we've never been told that in the end we get the earth back as well that in that new day we will live on a renewed earth. So the gospel is God's good news to man, this good news about salvation. And the resurrection is the proof that the gospel is true. It's God's stamp of approval upon the life of Christ and His demonstration that Jesus is the Son of God. And finally, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe to all who will place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. I want to ask you this morning, are you sure of your salvation? If you died today, do you know where you would spend eternity? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Would you like to know that? The Bible tells us that he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. But these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know with certainty that you have eternal life. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, Paul says, If we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we shall be saved. For it is with our heart that we believe and are justified. And it is with our mouth that we confess and are saved. I'm going to close in prayer this morning. And if you would like to pray to ask Jesus to be your Savior and Lord, to come into your life and to forgive your sins, would you pray this prayer with me quietly in your own heart? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I need you. And I thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I open the door of my life and I receive you as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for forgiving my sins and for giving me eternal life. Take control of the throne of my life and make me the kind of person you want me to be. Amen. If you pray that prayer this morning for the first time, would you tell me, would you tell someone here at our church Every time someone makes a commitment to Christ, we like to put a white rose up that symbolizes that new spiritual birth. And this particular white rose was from our Good Friday service the other night. 
What a joy it is if you could look back upon this day and you could say on Easter in 2011, that was the day I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And now listen to these words of Scripture as our benediction. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.